New here, welcome. My name is Rashad, um, one of the pastors here on staff, and I get the honor to teach most Sundays here at Reality Boston. And so I um, hope you feel welcome. And um, yeah, if you're looking for a church home, this is a, um, a family and a group of people that are seeking Jesus for the renewal of the city and to advance joy in our great city of Boston. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're here and that you want to speak to us. And um, this is that your word is alive and that it's active. And so uh, we say, God, bring life and bring your activity to this church. Bring it to us, Lord. Bring it to our city. Um, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a, this, is, this is the big passage. This is a lot. Um, I'm it took a lot of editing, so I'm going to try to, to uh, do my best to, to preach, um, I think, what the Spirit wants to say through this text. And so, um, a little context, Paul is on his first, um, what we call, missionary journey. And um, if, you, if you've been tracking with us, the hand of the Lord is on the church, it's on this group of people that are following the way of Jesus, and it's the hand of the Lord has been directing them, and they started out in Antioch in Syria, then they went to Cyprus, and you remember last week they were in Cyprus, and um, Paul was confronted by a sorcerer, and um, sorcerer was blinded, and the governor came to faith in Jesus, and many around them came to faith in Jesus, and now Paul's on his second destination of his journey, and they cross over to a place called Perga, and they're in a port city of the Gulf of Pamphylia. These are very long words that all start with P, and um, <laughs> and from Pamphylia he's going to go to um, Poseidon, Antioch. So not to be confused with Antioch of Syria. Are you with me? All right, a little history lesson. Okay, and so. When they landed this poor city, Perga, he has to go 100 miles north to Pisidian Antioch. But also what you need to know about this 100-mile trek is that it goes up in elevation about 3,600 feet in elevation. And I, I don't know, some of you guys climb rocks and mountains. I don't do that. I stay below sea level. But I'm assuming that's a decent height. I don't know. Um, and so they say that... Um, Pisidian Antioch is an important city on the Roman road. And so this journey, commentators say, for Paul, he, he probably got sick on the way. Um, it says that this route included a lot of narrow ravines, steep cliffs. It was known for having robbers in, on it. And depending on what time of the year he was going to Pisidian Antioch, there could have been snow that blocked the passages. Thank you, Lord, for sending me. Amen? No. Okay, and so, and then, so, so I want you to understand that the road to this place wasn't easy. And in addition to it, um, John Mark, which is Barnabas' brother, decides to leave them in the middle of this journey and head back to Jerusalem. And we'll read later as we get to Acts 15 that Paul had a little bit of beef with John Mark. You guys know what beef is. Vegans, you know what that is. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> um, Paul, Paul and Barnabas, they have one objective, to find an open door to preach the gospel of Jesus. 
And so they reach Pisidian Antioch, and immediately on the Sabbath day, they find um, a synagogue, and they go into the synagogue. Verse 14, it says, From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And you're wondering, how are there synagogues there? Well, there's a diaspora of the Jewish people, and they spread all across the region. So it wasn't uncommon to find synagogues outside of Jerusalem. And this area that, they, that they're in, if you're wondering, is probably like South Turkey right now. And so that's how far this diaspora has been spread out to. And so they enter the synagogues and they, they have a seat. N.T. Wright says about the synagogue, said the synagogue not only represented the people that God's message of the Messiah was to go to first, but Paul knows how these people tick, the stories and the songs that they are familiar with and how to get the point across. So he goes into a familiar place to declare the gospel of Jesus. So Paul, Paul and Barnabas are in a Jewish synagogue, and as they're sitting down, they're kind of asked a question or given a request, which is not uncommon in, um, in the synagogue. And it says in verse 15, um, they, at the end of verse 15, it says, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So this is like me coming up to one of you that are first time guests. Say, hey, you have something to say? Would you stand up and share something with us today? What has the Lord impressed upon your heart? Like that's kind of like what happens right here. All right. And so they are asked if they have anything they want to encourage or speak into the people. And I just, I think it's apropos to recognize that they didn't burst into Pisidian Antioch with, um, with megaphones or signs, and they didn't come into the synagogue and, and disrupt what was going on. They participated, and then they were invited. I think this is important to pay attention to. When God's at work, it's important for us to show up and let him open the doors of opportunity. Paul stands after, after being invited, and he addresses the crowd. That means he's about, to, he's about to preach, and this is his first recorded message in Acts. And um, we're going to go through his sermon, though not exhaustively, but I think there's three major key things that he does here in his sermon, and the three major movements that he does as he addresses his audience. And through each of these movements, he, he readdresses who he's talking to. Like, look at verse... 16, at the end of verse 16, he says, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. He's talking to the Israelites, and he's also talking to these, these Gentiles who are worshiping along the Israelites. And these Gentiles are religious proselytes. They, they are united with the Jews in the acts of ordinary worship. Theologian Willie Jennings says this, It is the common people formerly spectators from whom God is intensely watching and now addressing by the Spirit. Paul is addressing the Gentiles as he's addressing the Israelites. God has something to say to them. This is very important because Paul, I I believe, is, is foreshadowing what is to come, a Gentile revival. So verses 16 through 22, Paul goes into the story of God's preparation for the people of God. And he, what he says, what he's saying, big picture, God has been preparing a people to be his own. That's, as you read the story of, 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 the, of the people of God, that he's been preparing a people to be his own, to enter into his kingship and the adoption 
through Jesus Christ. And he starts with the history that the audience knows and cherishes. He starts with the agreed upon footing of their, of their history of what God has done historically. He starts with the choosing and the calling of the, of the ancestors into covenant with Yahweh. And then he goes into Egypt, and he, we all, all agree that, yes, we were in Egyptian captivity. We were in dire circumstances. We were in slavery and oppression. And he says, but yet, people of God still prospered. And he says, even in Egyptian captivity, that God's mighty hand was upon the people of God and ultimately delivered them from and brought freedom and liberty, liberty to the people of God. And then he says, after Egyptian captivity and freedom, then they moved into the wilderness. And the wilderness was a time of testing. And in verse 18, he says that he endured their conduct. And this is talk, God's, God's perspective on his dealings with Israel. He endured their conduct. Do you know some people that like that in your life, that you're enduring their conduct? Maybe the person that you walked in here with. I don't know. I'm just joking. Um, I mean, <laughs> but for 40 years, the people of God got, got on God's nerves. God put up with their distrust. He put up with their immaturity for 40 years. And even through all that, he, over, he overthrew the, oppress, the opposing nations that wanted to dispel the people of God. And he protected them. And he addressed their homelessness. And he gave the people of God a home to settle into. And Paul says all this was God fulfilling his promise. And then he goes on to say 450 years of God's work in the making. So as he talks through Egyptian captivity and freedom and wilderness, he's saying this is 450 years of God's work in the making, of God fulfilling his promises. God's promises take a while to unfold. Then he, then he goes on, he says, then, then God gave them judges, and they had judges that were protecting them through war and keeping them safe and doing some judicial acts to keep the people of God, the people of God, and both internally and externally. And then at some point, the people of God said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God, though this is not what he wanted to do, he gives them a king. And he says that he gave them Saul as their king. And and he has the appearances of everything that they want, like the other nations. And then after 42 years of Saul leading the people of God, um, he dies. And then, God, and then it says, God gave, the people of, God gave them David, a king after his own heart. And God promised through David a descendant who would one day sit on his throne and be the forever king. And this right here is the longing of the people of God for centuries. That this descendant of David would sit on the throne and reign with justice and righteousness. And that the kingdom of God would come to earth and it would be a flourishing. And, it would, and that the promises of God would be fully unfolded in their reality. You with me? And so, as, so Paul is telling them their story. And I'm sure like you guys there, Amen. Brother, that's a good word. We're in agreement here up until this point. And he says that Jesus is that one. Now, I want you 
to remember that there's, there is a longing for things to change. Though they're free, they're still dealing with Roman rule. They're still dealing with unmet expectations for what God has promised to do. That might be you today. And I want you to take note, because this is weaved all throughout this sermon, that God always fulfills his promises. And so here's Paul's next word. He says, from this man's descendants, he's talking about David, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. God fulfills his promises. Jesus is God's promise. And, he, and, and I... A, a section of this crowd has just stopped tracking with him and where he was going. They were following him all the way up until this point. And then he continues, says, you, you don't believe how Jesus fits in this story. And then he brings in the story of John the Baptist. And he says, John recognized who Jesus was. John, who you agree is a prophet, said, I am not worthy to touch his shoelaces. Where did shoes? His sandals. Not worthy to touch his sandals. <laughs> or slides. Um... <laughs> John, on seeing Jesus' appearance, says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John was the one who said, I am preparing the way. He is greater than I. I decrease. He increases. John's role was to call the people of God to repentance so they could receive Jesus. So here's here's what Paul's doing. Here's what N.T. Wright says that Paul's doing. Paul is setting up a system of signposts from David a thousand years before to John a mere 15 years or so later. And all the signposts point to one person, Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer. Now he moves, he's shifting in his speech. He, he's, giving, he's about to give a declaration, a messianic announcement, and he readdresses his audience again. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. He's saying, stay with me, both of you, this is for you. And he says, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. And I want you to understand, as, as, as we go into this text about what God is saying, that this is the heart of a God who bleeds for his people. That this is the heart of a God who desperately wants reconciliation, restoration, and redemption. Because God wants to live with his people. And he says, this Jesus was sent to you. He's talking to the, his Jewish brothers and sisters He's saying, this Jesus was sent to you. You are the people of promise. But he goes, but you didn't recognize him. That God was right in your midst. That which you've longed for was right in your midst and you didn't recognize it. You read and you search the scriptures diligently for God's answer to the world. And it was right in front of you and you didn't recognize it. In addition to not recognizing that Jesus was God's answer, you unjustly condemned him to death and you partnered with the empire to have, a, to have him executed like a common thief. In verse 30 he says, but, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead and after that he walked the earth With us, he walked the earth with his followers. Verse 31, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. 
They testify about the stories and the claims of Jesus about the resurrected one because they encountered him. And ladies and gentlemen, friends, if you encountered the resurrected Jesus, you are a witness to the resurrection. You are a witness to the world that he's alive. And their job is to tell Israel a savior has come. And to the audience, though you have no clue what God has done, we're here to tell you. If you're here today and you have no clue what God has done, and you, if you think that God is inactive and he's left the world to its own, I want to tell you today that God has, is not done with this world. We are here to tell you as witnesses, as witnessing the resurrection of Jesus in my own life, that God is real and the resurrection is real. That's what they're doing. They're testifying to their people that they love dearly. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. Their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second song, you are my son, today I become your father. Good news. God has raised up Jesus. What was dead, what seemed impossible, what seemed like doom and destruction and hopelessness, God has turned into victory. God has not only raised him from the dead, but he sits, he's exalted him. He sits at the right hand of God. He's been given authority, power, and life. And he, he juxtaposes the life of Jesus to David. He said, David decayed. David has passed away. Everything that you've ever put your hope in is decayed. But if you put your hope in Jesus, he doesn't decay. He resurrects. He has life. He has power. He has authority to change your life, to change things that seem impossible. Verse 37, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So what does that mean for us? Why does this matter? Why is this good news? One, because God is good on his promises. God is good on his promises. It may just not be what you thought it was going to look like. Two, death is not the end. Three, because death and sin in the grave have been defeated. This is good news. And lastly, which blows everyone's mind, is that this good news, this invitation to the kingdom is for everyone. It's for everyone in this room. Not just for Jews. He addresses them again, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin and a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. What was severed from the beginning, our relationship with God is restored in Jesus because sin has been atoned for, it's been forgiven through Jesus. Life with God is possible. No more sacrifices, no more shame, no longer slaves. Every sin, no matter what you've done, no longer has a hold on you. You're free. Is that good news? 
Okay, I'm just, I'm just checking because I'm like, I'm hearing that and I'm like, yes, amen, Lord, because I know what I've done. I know where I've come from. You're saying that I have a place in you because of Jesus. Man, I'm, I'm indebted. I'm in gratitude. What, what can I do to pay you back? Nothing is paid for. It's all done. You're free. You're welcomed in. Man, Lord, thank you. Like me, this guy, like that's been overlooked, that's been pushed to the corner, that's that's been that feels unseen in this world. You're saying that you see me and that you sent your only son to die for me, and you're coming to tell me that personally? Man, God, you're amazing. This is great. This is good news. This is stirring up my heart, the longings in my soul that for life. Because I'm trying to find life in all these places. I'm trying to read medium articles and I'm trying to read like medical reports and journals. What's going to bring me life? Oh, sin is erased and eradicated because of Jesus Christ. He conquered death, sit, and the grave, and he's alive. He sits at the right hand of God and he holds the world and the cosmos in order and in place. And he knows me by name and he's calling me to life. Life with him in the age to come? Oh, man, this is good news. I'm trying to preach this thing because a couple of you dozing off. And I'm like, all right, let's, let me break from the script because I want to connect because this is good news. And I'm just going to move on. God. <laughs> Jesus, life, death, and resurrection foretold in the Psalms and the prophets and the forgiveness of sin through his name. This is what Paul's getting at. He's going through the story of the people of God and weave through it points to Jesus Christ, points to a God who fulfills his promises. And he's letting them know the promise has been fulfilled. I think you missed it, but I want to point you to it. And he, and he, and he comes to a point in his message where it's like, this elicits a response. And before they respond, he, he, it's kind of like sometimes when you say, I'm going to tell you something very important, but I don't want you to answer too quickly because I want you to think about what I'm saying. And he kind of does that right here. Be careful how you answer. He, he issues a warning in verse 40. He says, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Be careful that you don't perpetuate the posture of your ancestors. You might think that you're different. Pause and evaluate your heart and what's going on and how you want to respond right now. I know this is hard to believe that this Jesus, who you saw as a common person, who sat down with tax collectors and sinners and and prostitutes and and women and people, and he didn't seem very holy or religious to you, don't don't discount that 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 being God's answer to the world. And he, when he does this, he's quoting Habakkuk 1.5, which was a warning to the people. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Paul gives them a warning. He says, believe the good news of Jesus or be judged. Willie Jennings says this, if a resurrected Jesus and the presence of the Spirit are not enough to convince you, then what will? Well, Mr. Jennings, <laughs> there's nothing left to convince there's, there's no one else coming. Jesus is God's answer for life. Don't miss God again. Don't let unbelief and distrust 
do just that cause you to have life without God? I wonder for those of us that are here, where is God challenging you in areas to put your faith and trust in Jesus? John 1 talks about Jesus coming into earth and, tab- and, and, and moving into the neighborhood. And it says in verse 11, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. God's mission in the world is to restore all that's been lost. You, me, the world. And this is an invitation to receive Jesus as Lord. And it says there, if you wonder where we're at, we're like verse 42 to 44. Um, it says that, that the people, they're, they're stirred. They're stirred at this message that Paul is preaching about Jesus, and they want to hear more. And so they say, would you come back and teach us again? And it says they, they, they come back the next Saturday, the next Sabbath, and it says that the whole city has descended to hear them preach about Jesus, and they're captivated by the message of Jesus. And you would think that this good news would inspire the Jewish leaders, and it says that they were jealous. Verse 45, it says, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. I want you, when you hear that word jealous, I want you to understand that word means religious rage. That their, their, their zeal for God and how they interpret God has caused them to come after Paul and Barnabas and the message that they're declaring about Jesus. Another commentator says this about this religious zeal. This was blasphemous nonsense and the righteous indignation which welled up in them deeply understandably as it was and corresponding exactly to the reaction of the young Saul of Tarsus only a few years before was again this thing called zeal. Not envy or jealousy, as some translations have it, but zeal, righteous indignation, zeal for their God and his law. They were so zealous for God that they were missing God. And they were so zealous for God that they are retaliating against God by assaulting Paul. They even, again, they teamed up with the empire, it says they've teamed up with powerful men and women in the city to politically remove them from proclaiming the gospel. So I want you, I want you to think about this. God sends you on a mission. He says, I want you to go to this city. I don't know, I, think it, I want you to go to Worcester, right? <laughs> we got one announced. <laughs> and I want you to proclaim the gospel you know, at, at the pub, right? Whatever, you know, and, and people get mad at you and they start throwing you out. Like, like, this is what happens. They're getting thrown out of the city. They're getting rejected by the city. By, and, and, and this mission, I would, for some of us, would feel like a failed mission. Or think like, God, why would you tell me to go here and experience this? But despite opposition... God's intended purposes are accomplished. And, and I think sometimes we experience opposition and we think that there's no way that God could accomplish his purposes through this 
to this climate. When you think about the, the, the things that you might experience, whether at, at work or at home or in your neighborhood, and you try to do th- things for God, that, that opposition means that God's not working. That opposition means that his hand is not on your life. And what we're seeing over and over again is a lot of times opposition is because God is working through you. And that the gospel is always going to be contended. It's going to be in contested space. Because the good news is freedom and liberty and injustice and sin and death. Don't want people to be free. Don't want liberty. Don't want people to find their identity and who they are in God and in Jesus. And says that the Gentiles received this good news in gladness, and that the word of God spread throughout the region. The climate was opposition, trials, rejection, and persecution, and the good news spread like wildfire. And it says that they continued to persecute them, and that Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet and they kept going. We're almost done. Jesus said in Matthew 10, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. This could feel callous. This could feel cold. And you have to read all of Scripture because you see that Paul in Romans talks about how much his heart breaks for his people. So you have to understand, even shaking off his dust of his feet and keep moving, it still hurts. It's still hard because he loves his people. He, he said that he would rather trade in his salvation for his people. This is how much he cares for them. So I don't want you to hear callous, like, oh, okay, you don't hear it, forget you. He's, he's moving in faith because God's calling him to other places. But understand that this still hurts. Last quote, quote, not quote, last quote. We're going to need quote soon. Willie Jennings says this. <laughs> Joy and sorrow are found at the sight of this resistance. This contradiction embedded in love, and to understand it requires the ability, the ability to enter the longings of the Spirit and share divine joy when anyone comes to the Savior. Listen, we have the awesome privilege to proclaim Jesus as Lord to our world, to those we love. And there's times where we're going to experience rejection and heartbreak. But we're also going to experience divine joy. It says, his out ends, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is what we see throughout this whole book of Acts. Whether you're doing the work of Jesus in the world or you receive Jesus for the first time, what we see all throughout the book of Acts is joy is that this divine joy that enters in regardless of the circumstance. And so I pray that we would be the kind of people who are on mission for Jesus and experience his divine joy because the gospel is moving forward in our contested space and city and time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father.